This morning's message really is a continuation of what we dipped our toe into last Sunday. If you weren't here last Sunday, don't be alarmed. I think you'll be able to pick up on where we're headed. Last Sunday, we talked about Jesus' seventh and final I am statement that he made to his disciples while living on the earth. I am the true vine, he said. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. And last Sunday, we looked at the Old Testament background of that imagery that Jesus used, the nation of Israel being God's precious vine that he planted in the promised land for one singular purpose, that Israel might bear fruit to his glory. And that would have been a powerful word picture for these 11 Jewish men that Jesus was walking with on this night, the night that he was betrayed. Now for us, disciples living 2,000 years later, the key to grasping that that vine metaphor involves two steps. First of all, you have to picture yourself as a branch on that vine. And then second, you have to answer this very simple question with complete honesty. Am I a fruit-bearing branch? Am I a fruit-bearing branch? And I'll put this image back on the screen that we looked at last week just so that you can again see what, that, what a fruit-bearing vine branch looks like. Am I a branch that produces clusters of fruit like you see in that picture, or am I producing just leaves but no fruit? Now, don't get me wrong. The leaves are pretty. They look great from the outside, but when it comes to harvesting a vineyard, those leaves are of no value to the gardener. In fact, he will strip them off and look to see if there's fruit underneath. So are you fruitful or just leafy? Now, as I use that term fruitful, don't overinterpret it. I'm not asking if your life has become perfectly holy yet. If it has, come see me afterwards. Or if you're producing just massive amounts of fruit all the time in every area of your life. What I'm asking is, is the Spirit of God at work in you? Is there evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in you? For believers, we're all in a process of sanctification, various stages of growth, that are sometimes intense and at other times slower than we'd like and and sometimes even stagnant. We all wish we'd be more consistent, but as you stand back and examine your life, you should be able to answer these basic questions. Has the Spirit of God produced new convictions and new desires in me? Has he brought about in you a transformed way of thinking that has then led to a transformed way of living? Transformed thinking that leads to transformed living. Do you see a pattern or a trajectory of growth in spiritual fruit taking place in your life? And by the way, if the Spirit is in you, this shouldn't be that hard to discern because Paul tells us in Romans 8, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So you can add that question to the mix as well. What does the Spirit say to your spirit about your salvation? Now, if you're still unsure... Here's the alternative. Here's what a leafy life looks like without the spiritual fruit. It's having a connection to Jesus that is purely topical. It's surface level only. You're around Jesus. You're around Jesus-loving people, but there's, there's a lack of real change in your heart, a lack of change in your life. Now, the reality is, is only you can know what exactly is happening within your heart, what, what's going on inside of you. Only you really know what your true motivations are. And as we've seen with the example of Judas, it's possible to say enough good things and do, a good, do enough good things to where you can actually 
fool people into believing that there's actual life in you when that's not the truth. So let me ask you some more questions. Are you here because you're trying to be better? Are you here today because you want to get your life cleaned up? Are are you searching for a stricter brand of morality in your life? Is that your motivation? Are you under the impression that attending worship services, being connected to a church will somehow offset all of the sinful things that you've done in your past or are currently engaged in? Is church for you just a nice tradition that you grew up with and now you're here thinking, I want to get back to that tradition? Is it about this good feeling that you get after you leave the worship service? Deep in your heart is belonging to a church about showing others that your life is squared away, that you're a good person. In other words, you're really motivated by what other people think of you. All of those things are various forms of what we call religious moralism. And you have to know this, it's not the same thing as the gospel. It's not the same thing as being a born-again, spirit-filled believer. Moralism cannot replace the gospel because it has no power to justify you as a sinner in God's sight. It can't justify you. In fact, it's not really about God at all. If you're a moralist, it's not about God. It's about elevating yourself. It's about how you feel. It's about how you benefit. It's about how you think you look to others. And so it's all leaves, but no fruit. And the reason for that is obvious. If you're a moralist, you're not connected to the vine. And as Jesus told us last Sunday in our text, Apart from the vine, you can produce absolutely nothing of spiritual value. Now, here's why this is so important to sort out and why I'm taking the time to go through it even before we get to today's passage. In last Sunday's text, when we looked at the first six verses of John 15, Jesus said there are two types of branches. There are fruit-bearing branches and there are non-fruit-bearing branches. And for the non-fruit-bearing branches, Jesus had terrifying news, didn't he? Terrifying news. In the end, those leafy branches with no fruit are good for one thing and one thing only, as kindling for the fire. That's it. The gardener will eventually cut them away from the vine. He will collect them, and he will burn them in the fires of hell. So this is no small issue. This is a matter of eternal life and death, and it's my hope and prayer that nobody here this morning falls into that category of kindling For the fruit-bearing branches, you might recall from last Sunday's text that the key to bearing fruit is this idea of abiding in the vine. The more you abide in the vine, the more fruit that will be produced through you. And we look briefly at what this abiding means. We talked about it being dwelling with Christ, making Christ your home. And stepping back, the picture we've been given in John's gospel is actually a mutual indwelling, right? You in Christ and Christ in you, by the way of a spirit. And the fact is, every true Christian longs for more of that indwelling, more of the power and the peace and the joy that comes with making Christ your home and having him at home in you. We long to know Jesus more deeply, don't we? To know him more intimately, to know him more consistently. In fact, Paul said that he counts all things, all things, everything in his life, all things as loss in view of the much greater value of knowing Christ. And I hope that's your prayer as well, that you would give up everything, everything to know Christ on a deeper level. But what does abiding mean? In a tangible way, what does it mean? Now, we talked about it a little bit last week, but I didn't have time to go into it in detail. Let me flesh it out a little bit more. I saw this really great description 
this week in my study time. Let's look carefully at this statement because I think it's brilliant. To abide in Christ is to have no known sin unconfessed, no interest into which he is not brought, no part of your life which he cannot share. The one who abides in Christ takes every joy and every burden to him and draws all wisdom and strength from him. That's a depth of relationship. Everything in your life is shared with this one who indwells you. Question is, is that the way we live as Christians? Are we bringing Christ into everything? The good, the bad, and the otherwise. I like that. I like that statement. I also think it's important to add two other ingredients. One is time and the other is quality. Listen to this. Abiding in Christ is not a quick fix solution. It's not something that you, you, you take off the shelf when things get tough and then you use it and then when your life improves, you put it back on the shelf. That's not what abiding is. Abiding takes time, lots and lots of time. It's a lifelong commitment that will never come to an end until the day that the Lord calls you home and he completes his work in you. Amen? So time. In terms of quality, it means that progress is being made over the long haul, that your relationship with Christ is deepening over the years. Yes, there will be seasons in your life when the progress will be easier and more fruitful. There'll be other seasons where it's harder to come by and maybe a little bit slower, but the Spirit of Christ will never move away from you if you're a believer. He is always present, always seeking to do His work in you, so the key for us is to keep coming back to Him time and time and time again, always repenting of sin and seeking to be attached to the vine. And if you're like me, that's a daily process. It's not something we can just use occasionally, but progress comes as we remain attached to the vine. And as I shared over the last two weeks, this idea of abiding with Christ is not something you're ever going to passively drift into. It's got to be intentional. You don't just go, oh, I stumbled today and fell into abiding with Christ. You don't drift into it. So the two key words from last Sunday's message were dependence and discipline. Dependence and discipline. The first precedes the second. First, we acknowledge our dependence upon the life and the vitality of the vine because without that connection, we can produce how much? Nothing. And then once we're connected to the vine, we discipline ourselves. And what that means is we put our minds, our hearts, and our bodies in a place and a posture where the Spirit can then produce spiritual fruit in us. And that's an intentional thing. So long introduction. Hopefully that makes sense. Hopefully that sets the, the groundwork for today. If you haven't already, grab your Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 15. And we're going to finish this unit of thought that really runs from verse 1 to verse 11. John 15, 7 through 11 today. Remember, Jesus and the disciples have left the upper room and they are now walking towards the Mount of Olives, through the streets of Jerusalem, out the water gate, into the Kidron Valley, headed towards the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. And at some point in this journey, Jesus again begins to teach. Verse, let me go back to verse 1, just so that we, we catch the whole thing. Verse 1, I am the true vine. Hey, fellas, pay attention. I am the true vine, he says. I just added that for, for fun. And my father is the vine dresser or the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. 
You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. He repeats himself. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I, I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up or withers. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. Now our five verses for this morning. Verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So the first thing you notice here is a reference to prayer, to asking Jesus for whatever you wish. Look again at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. What a promise, right? Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So having a consistent and powerful prayer life is one of the most obvious signs that you're abiding in the vine. Spurgeon said it well. I'll give you a great quote from my man Spurgeon. He says, Prayer comes spontaneously from those who abide in Jesus. I love this word. It's the natural outgushing. I, my word processor didn't even like that word as I was typing it out, but Spurgeon liked it. It's the natural outgushing of a soul in communion with him. It just, it just comes out. You can't help it when you're abiding in Christ. It gushes out. Now, make sure you see in this verse that there's a vital connection between two things here. Abiding in Christ and God's word. Abiding in Christ and God's word. Not only do you need to abide in me, Jesus says, but my words, all that I've taught you, have to abide in you whenever you come to me in prayer. That's really important. So it shouldn't be one without the other. If you're one of those folks who places a heavy focus on the study of the word, but you aren't striving in your walk with him to deepen that indwelling relationship with Christ, you're probably out of balance. You're probably out of balance. It's likely that your spiritual life is going to be overly intellectual, possibly cold, and probably missing some fruits of the Spirit. On the other hand, if you place a heavy emphasis on spending time with Jesus in prayer and worship, but you have no time or patience to study His Word, you're also going to be out of balance. It's likely that your spiritual life is going to be overly emotional, but lacking sufficient biblical anchors. And so you're going to be missing fruits of the Spirit as well. So the point is, make Jesus your home in a way that is balanced. And if you tend, as we all do, because none of us gets this right, you tend to lean towards one over the other, then you've got to make that adjustment. You've got to strive to emphasize that weaker side of you while maintaining the strength of your stronger side. It's got to be intentional. So, for example, a moment of transparency. You probably, probably aren't surprised by this, but I lean towards the intellectual side of the faith, right? Towards the study of God's Word. So I've got to be aware of that, and I've got to compensate. I've got to balance things out. It's not enough for me just to have an intellectual faith and to come up here on Sundays and preach you know, sound doctrinal sermons. That's good. It's good for you. But it's not great for me. It's not enough for me. 
So knowing my tendencies, I have to make it my goal to put myself in a position for more quiet time with the Lord, more prayer, and more worship more often. So what about you? Which, which side do you tend to err on between those two things? And have you made an intentional choice to try to emphasize your weaker part so that you can bring that into balance? That's a really important thing to do. See, verse 7 is actually guaranteeing, and that's a strong word, guaranteeing that as God's children, we will receive what we ask for in prayer. And that may be surprising to you, but isn't that what Jesus said? Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Which raises the question, how can he say that? In spite of what a lot of people would like that to say, it's not a blanket promise, though, right? Go ahead and ask for a million dollars. You're not going to get it from the Lord. Go ahead. I mean, you can, you can test him in this, but my guess is he's not going to grant that request. So what's really going on here? Well, prayer is not a way of getting God to do what you want him to do. Now, again, we've been, many of us have been taught poorly about this. It's not about getting God to do what you want him to do. Biblical prayer, including from this text, is about aligning yourself with what God has already promised to do. You aligning yourself with his promises. It's asking him to further his kingdom purposes and get this, to do it through you. That's shocking, isn't it? Because you know yourself, right? You, you know who you are. You know your own heart. But here's God saying, come to me, ask for things because I long to accomplish my purposes and fulfill my promises through you, my child. That's amazing stuff. So the key to praying with power and effectiveness is to become a worshiper who's motivated only by biblical desires that glorify God. That's why Jesus' guarantee of answer prayer is conditioned here, isn't it? It's conditioned on two things, that you're dwelling in me and that my word is dwelling in you. Why? Because if that's happening in your life, if you are immersing yourself in Jesus and in his word, you're not going to pray for selfish things. That would be out of character, wouldn't it, to pray for selfish things? You're going to find yourself praying for kingdom things that magnify the Lord. And when you do that, when you line yourself with God's will and you pray for things that are kingdom-related, guess what? God's always going to answer that prayer. Always. Again, listen to Spurgeon as he summarizes this. He says, When the spiritual life of a man is master in him, his aspirations are holy, heavenly, godlike. Right? Because you're immersed in Christ. So your aspirations, the thing that you like, are no longer selfish and fleshly. They become holy. And you can lift those things up to Christ in confidence. So that's the key to effective prayer. Abide in Christ. Let his word transform the way you think, and you will find your prayers lining up with his mind and his will. Amen? Now, as I say that, I know that there are at least... Two outstanding questions that people still have about prayer. You're like, okay, that makes sense, Jeff. I still have questions. I get it. And man, I would love to stand up here and go, we're going to do an eight-week series, and I'm going to give you every detail about how prayer works. The man that can stand up and says, I figured out how prayer works, is lying to you. There is a tension in this. But we can talk about it, right? At least two things. Here's the first one. The question is, if God is sovereign over all things and he has all things mapped out, has always had things mapped out from the beginning of time, then why do we pray? What's the point, Jeff? And for that, I'm going to get back to Spurgeon, of course. Because actually, he, my favorite answer on this comes from one of Spurgeon's sermons. It's in two parts. So let me read this and try to follow along because it's a little bit technical, but it's so important. 
He says, it is our full belief that God has foreknown and predestinated everything that happens in heaven above and on the earth beneath, and that the foreknown station, get this, of a reed by the river is as fixed as the station of a king. That's how much detail God has, has foreordained. The condition of that weed by a river and the fact that a king is in place. That's amazing, right? He says, predestination embraces the great and the small and reaches unto all things. The question is, why then pray? Might it not be logically asked then, why breathe? Why eat? Why move? Why do anything? And he goes on, he says, well, we have an answer which satisfies us, namely that our prayers are in the predestination. Think about that. Our prayers are in the predestination and that God has as much ordained his people's prayers as anything else. And when we pray, we're producing links in the chain of ordained facts. That's an amazing statement. Destiny decrees that I should pray, so I pray. Destiny decrees that I shall be answered, and the answer comes to me. So this is, this is exactly how Scripture describes this tension between God's sovereignty on one hand and the privilege we have on the other hand to come to Him and, and leave very real prayer requests before Him. It, it's not robotic. These are very real requests that we bring. And in fact, there's an obvious prayer here between how prayer works and how salvation works, both being a, an act of God's grace from beginning to end. Here's what we know. In his sovereignty, God marked out whom he will save, and he did it before the foundations of the world were laid. And yet we know within our lifetimes, within time and space, we're called to turn to God and to receive his offer of salvation and be saved. And somehow those two things work together. Have you settled that in your heart, that those two things are, God has laid it out before the foundation of the world, yet in time and space, we act. And there's a tension there. Same thing in prayer. God has ordained the end of all things. Our prayers aren't going to change God's decree. Even as Spurgeon said, he's, he's ordained his people's prayers. Yet within our lifetimes, again, within time and space, we're called to come to God freely and to lay our request before the throne of grace. And somehow, those two things work together. In fact, what we see is, is that God is actually pleased, this is amazing, to use our prayers and fit them into our will, in, in, into his will, use our prayers and fit them into his will to accomplish his purposes through you and I. Now, don't, again, don't ask me to explain all the details of how that works, way above my pay grade. Maybe... Maybe someday in heaven we're going we're gonna to see how all this fit together. But God has ordained all these things. But this is how the Bible describes it. So we let that tension sit there. And we're okay with it, right? Because we trust God's word and we still pray for these reasons. Number one, because God told us to pray, right? Number two, because our prayers really do matter. Scripture affirms that as well. Number three, because when we humbly submit to God in prayer, it changes us. For the better, right? It brings us in line with him. And fourth, because that time spent with God in authentic prayer is a key part of how we abide with him, how we deepen that relationship of abiding with him. So we pray, amen? Second question that comes up is this. Okay, Jeff, that's fine. I don't fully understand it, but okay. Here's the thing. I have prayed and prayed and prayed for what I'm sure are kingdom-related things, and I don't get them answered. 
I have not seen God answer my prayers, and I'm sure they're kingdom-related things. And I know this can be frustrating. I've experienced it. But when that happens, it gives us an opportunity to have our faith stretched, to trust the Lord in things that we cannot see, and to submit our finite understanding, which is about this wide, with God's unfathomable wisdom, to submit to that. There's no question that he's heard our prayer. That is a promise that we have. But it's very likely that he's working to respond to that prayer in ways that we just can't see. We can't. This world is too big. The connections of all things are too grand. And our vision's this wide. We just can't see it in the moment. In fact, it's likely he's answering our prayer in a way that is so far outside of our narrow vision that we couldn't have fathomed it when we first asked. That's true. I've experienced this multiple times in my life. I pray for something. I, I, I 100% believe that's kingdom related. And then I don't, I don't see a response. And I start to doubt. We all do, right? Like, okay, Lord, are, are, my, are my prayers bouncing off the ceiling? What's going on? And I shouldn't doubt, but we all go through this, right? And then much later, I find out that God was putting the pieces together of this grand mosaic to answer my prayers. And it looked absolutely nothing like what I asked for. But it's an answer to my prayer, and I go, wow, this is my God. So remember, God works according to his decree, not our desires, and he works according to his plan, not our timing. So sometimes we just have to get to that place in our our walk where we say, I will wait upon the Lord, right? Because he's told us, I will wait upon the Lord, and I I will watch in great expectation so that I'm amazed when he comes through and answers my prayer. Amen? Okay, so that's huge in verse 7. Now let's look at how verse 7 flows into verse 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, he says, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Here's what this tells us. When we abide in Christ and pray for kingdom things, we are exhibiting spiritual fruit in our lives, and God is glorified in that, right? When we're, when we're praying rightly with the right motivation, this is spiritual fruit, and it, it brings great glory to God, partly because he's pleased to answer those prayers. He's pleased to answer them. So catch the progression of the teaching here. This is really critical to our healthy walk. We abide in Christ. We let his word dwell in us. That causes us then to pray for the right things with the right motivation. God then answers our prayers and he is rightfully glorified in bringing about what he already sovereignly ordained to do, but through you and your prayers. That's amazing stuff. Does that not make you stand back in awe and say, Lord, the Lord's using me? I came to the throne of grace and it made a difference that God did something because I came in obedience and prayed and God was pleased to use my prayers. That's amazing stuff. So don't get, listen, when you're in a church like ours that leans into sovereignty strongly as we do, it's very easy to slip into this idea, well, my faith is robotic. These things don't really matter. They do. Scripture tells us they do. Now you might ask, okay, Jeff, do I always have to ask God for just big giant things? Can I ask for simple things? right? Can I ask for things like, Lord, I need an income. I need food on the table. Uh, I need a roof over my head. Can I ask for those things? Or is it wrong? The answer is no, it's not wrong. 
Jesus said it himself, right? Give us this day our daily bread. So we have an example. We can ask for those things. But here's the thing. We can and should pray for those things, but always subordinate them to the larger issues of God's kingdom. Always subordinate them to the grander vision of the kingdom. In other words, if your prayer for income is rooted in selfishness, you're wasting your time. That prayer is not going to be answered. But if your, your prayer for income is rooted in the fact that that's a means for kingdom things to be accomplished, then come and ask with that motivation. Come with confidence to the throne of grace and ask the Lord to answer that prayer. It always comes back to motivation of the heart, doesn't it? Right? In all things in the Christian life, it comes back, well, why am I doing this? What's my motivation? If we ask even for the simplest things with the right heart because you want to magnify the Lord and build his kingdom, God is pleased to answer those prayers. So we pray for in the spirit for all things, big and small, all things in service to God's kingdom and his will. Now look at the last phrase in verse eight. There's a final piece to the progression here. We, we said this already. We abide in Christ. We let his word dwell in us. That causes us to pray for the right things with the right motivation. God answers those prayers and he's glorified. Here's the final piece. And our hearts are assured that we belong to Jesus. You see it there? That's the final piece of this sort of progression of teaching. In this process, our hearts get assurance that we're saved. J.C. Ryle, great quote. He says, fruitfulness in Christian practice will not only bring glory to God, but will supply the best evidence to our own hearts that we are real disciples of Christ. And doesn't that seem obvious? I mean, if we're out there experiencing a fruitful life in Christ, and hopefully you've had at least a season in life where you're like, this is such a fruitful season. If you're experiencing that and you're seeing your life being transformed in amazing ways, how can you not be encouraged that the Spirit is in you and that He's working in you? And this is something we should all long for, true? Okay, now, as the rest of the passage unfolds, watch how Jesus is going to add one more really important ingredient to the mix. He uses the O word obedience. Obedience, right? But first, be amazed at what he says in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. So abide in my love. Did you catch it? The way that God the Father loves the Son, think about this, is the same way that Jesus loves you. With the same intensity, with the same commitment, with the same depth of passion, he loves you. It's an incredible declaration. It's, it's actually beyond even grasping because it's so hard for us to even understand how grand and how great the love of the Father is for the Son, but we should try to grasp it. Jesus is talking about a perfect, complete love. That's how the Father has loved the Son, a perfect, complete love. In fact, the Father loves the Son to an extent that as finite human beings, we can't even fathom, and yet we can take this by faith that Jesus loves us with the same extent. And don't we see that in the fact that he was willing to suffer and lay down his life in our place, that God, the creator of all things, would take on flesh and die for a wretch like you and me? Is that not a complete and perfect love? I mean, could you add anything to that? You can't. True God, sinless in all his ways, receives this great injustice and dies on a cross for guilty, wretched people. It's the most perfect, complete love you could ever imagine. 
It's the same love that the Father has for the Son, and he's extended that to you and I. So never get over the wonder of this truth, that the eternal Son of God gave himself up for you. He gave himself up. So Jesus says to his friends here in verse 9, understand how much I love you, and then abide in that truth. Dwell in that truth. Make your home there, and just be amazed at what he has done for you. This is why at Oak Hill, we say it all the time, preach the truth of the gospel to yourself. Preach it every day, over and over again. Say to yourself, I have a Savior and a Lord who has given everything to redeem me. I, I'm serious. Say it in the morning. You've heard me say this before. My, my, the thing that I, I try to like, connect is when my feet hit the carpet, first thing when I roll out of bed, it reminds me to say that to myself, to remind myself of that truth. I have a Savior who laid, laid down his life, gave everything to redeem me, a wretched sinner. And I have a father who now declares that I belong to him, that he's adopted me into his family, that I'm precious in his sight. Start your day with that truth. Jesus says, abide in that love. Trust in that promise. And it's going to carry you through hard times. Those truths will carry you through difficult seasons of life. Root them deeply in your heart. But now look at verse 10. There's a condition to it, okay? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, Jesus says. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So here's the thing. It's not just about preaching the, the gospel to yourself. You've got to put feet to it, right? It'd be really, wouldn't it be simple if we just said, just, keep, just preach the gospel to yourself every day and that's enough? Jesus says, no, you've got to put feet to this. Obedience is required. Obey my commandments. So listen, let me just say it. If you are living in a constant state of disobedience to the Lord, you are not abiding in the vine, period. You cannot abide in the vine. If you're living in a state of disobedience without repentance, you are disconnected from the vine. You are going to find yourself beginning to wither up and not produce spiritual fruit. Now, this is a tough concept for us, so I want you to listen to D.A. Carson. He explains the complexity of it. He says this, However much God's love for us is gracious and undeserved, continued enjoyment of that love turns, at least in part, on our response to it. Look at that again. Continued enjoyment of that love turns, at least in part, on our response to it. We must remain in Jesus' love by exactly the same means by which he has always remained in the Father's love, and that is what? Obedience. Obedience. Now, when you bring up the O word, you bring up obedience, people get all twisted up. Why? Because a lot of, a lot of times in our past, and, and sometimes it depends on the type of home that you were raised in, the way you saw obedience really affects the way you view God's call for obedience, right? How, was your, how were your parents, your, your father in particular, in terms of obey me? You're under my roof. You'll obey my rules, right? And so we, had, we bring all of this baggage into this concept of obedience. Don't get this twisted. Remember that love for Jesus is what ought to motivate our obedience to his commands, our love for Jesus. We don't use fleshly grit and determination to just go, to clench our teeth and go out and obey Jesus as if he's some awful tyrant. Because if you do that, if you transfer that, maybe that, thing you receive from your dad, and I wrestled with this for many years, personally. You take that from your father, and you apply it to God, you're going to get it twisted up. You're going to get it twisted up. He's not a tyrant. If you see it that way, you will turn his commandments into burdens and not blessings. 
It's love for God that motivates our obedience. So no, we obey his commandments because first of all, he's loved us perfectly. He's loved us completely. And we ought to respond in kind to him to the best of our spirit-led ability. And then second, we obey his commandments. Are you ready for this? Because they're good for us. We forget that, don't we? In our sort of rebellious nature, right? We, we, we hear a commandment. We want to immediately sort of put our, our dukes up like, you're not the boss of me, right? It's sort of our, our, our selfish, fleshly streak, right? But his commandments are good. In fact, his commandments, whether you want to admit it or not, are what's best for you. And because they're best for you, guess what? They're also rooted in love. Because that is what biblical love is, right? Wanting the best for another. So when, God, when Jesus says, these are my commandments, they're the best thing for you, that is love. So we've got to straighten out our thinking on this issue. So look, Jesus leaves us this great example. He says, while I was in the flesh, I abided in my Father's love, and I kept his commandments, and now my disciples go and do the same. Abide in my love and keep my commandments. Okay, last thing. Verse 11. To me, this is the best part of the whole passage. Verse 11. Listen how Jesus sums this whole section up. Listen, these 10 verses are loaded, aren't they? They're loaded with theology, with practical, you know, faith stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's pr pretty complex and can be a little bit confusing, but look how he sums it up. He says, these things, all these things I've just said, I've spoken to you. So this is a summary statement. These things I've spoken to you, here's the purpose. So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, I think this would be surprising. If you went out on the street uh, and you talk to just the average person out there, I think this would be surprising. If you describe to a, just the average person out here in Newhall what Jesus demands of his disciples in this passage to dwell with him in prayer, to worship him, to obey his commandments, most people would look at you and go, eh, that sounds like religious duty to me. And they might disparage you. They might say, you know, that sounds like drudgery to me. That sounds like, you know, narrow-minded and limiting. But you know what Jesus says about that? He says it's joy. This is the counterintuitive nature of the Christian walk, isn't it? He says it's joy, not just joy, fullness of joy. And what that means is that's like if you've got an eight-ounce can of soda and a glass that's eight ounces exactly, it's going to get filled up to the brim. It's, it's going to threaten to even overflow, right? It is the fullness. There's not one millimeter left of room. It is fullness of joy. Now, the world wants joy, don't they? In fact, the world would say this is the pinnacle of human experience. They're all searching for joy out there, but they can't find it because this world is so fallen. Apart from Christ, they'll never fall it. But biblical joy, or what we call the joy of the Lord, is very, very different from what they're searching for out there. It's a gladness of heart that comes from being reconciled to the Creator. It's a gladness of heart. It's a delight in the Creator. It's a product of abiding in His love and having the Spirit of God in you, indwelling you. And unlike the world's definition, true biblical joy doesn't depend on happy or positive circumstances. Because that's what the world wants. When they say joy, you know what they really want? I want everything to go my way. And if everything goes my way, I'll be super happy, I'll get everything I want, and then I'll be joyful. That is not biblical joy. Our joy, the, one, the type we have, 
isn't external. It's internal. And so it, it, it bears up even under trial, under tribulation. In fact, as I shared last Sunday from Romans 5, Paul says he found joy even in his tribulations. He exults in it, he says. Why does he exult in it? Because of what's going on inside of him. Through those tribulations, the Lord is producing more spiritual fruit in his life. That's what brings him joy. So the external stuff, the tribulations, don't affect what's inside of him because what's inside of him is stable in the Lord. And he has joy. James counsels us, right, in James 1, to consider it joy when you go through trials. That is insanity to the world, isn't it? Consider it all joy, he says, because those trials are going to test your faith. And you know what comes out of testing? Perseverance, endurance, a spiritual fruit. And then Peter, too, he writes, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Why? Because of the blessing that comes from the testing of your faith, how God is glorified in that. In other words, it produces spiritual fruit. Now, this kind of rejoicing doesn't mean that God wants us that we, you know, that when things get really hard, that we just paste on a happy face. Again, in our own strength and our own grit, paste on a fake happy face when we're hurting inside. The Bible gives us permission in certain seasons to be sorrowful, right? And to grieve. But in the grander picture, at the end of the day, we still have a supernatural joy because of what Scripture tells us about the eternal picture. What's going to happen, right? We know that we belong to God. We know that nothing can snatch us away from him. We know how the story of our lives ends, and we know where we'll be when it ends. And so we have supernatural joy. We'll dwell forever with our good shepherd, won't we? And our glorious king. That produces joy in us. So it's different than the world. Now, next week, oh, actually over the next two weeks, we're going to take a pause in John's gospel. And we're going to celebrate the Reformation. True, my favorite time of the year. So until we're back in John, we'll come back for a few more weeks before we get to Advent. Let these exhortations dwell in your mind, in your heart. Just a few. Friends, abide daily in Jesus, the vine. Make that your goal, even this week. Abide every day in Jesus, the vine. Engage with him in every aspect of your life. He's your closest friend. Bring everything, I'm talking good, I'm talking bad, and everything in between. He wants to share in all of it. He already knows it. So bring him in and share with him. Make, literally make him at home in every aspect of your life. That's what he's saying here to his disciples. And ask the Lord to make you a fruitful branch. Even as we're repenting of sin and and. and interacting with Jesus. Say, Lord, make me fruitful for your glory. And then be ready when he prunes you. Because <laughs> he'll prune you, right? Because he wants to produce even more fruit in your life. And be okay with that. As you dwell with Christ, make sure that his word is dwelling in you. I can't emphasize that strongly enough. To renew your mind, to renew your thinking requires being in his word. Listen, if you don't have a steady diet of his word in this culture we're living in today, you will grow weaker and you will grow more worldly. You will grow weaker and more worldly. Make sure his word is dwelling in you. And then bring your prayer request to him. Ask for things that are going to magnify his name. Ask for things that are going to build up the kingdom of God. 
Seek to obey his commandments and do it out of love, knowing that he wants his best for you, that those commandments are set up as beautiful guardrails for your life to cause you to flourish spiritually, to produce spiritual fruit. He always has your best in mind. And then finally, rest in his love. Rest, just rest in his love and be filled with that joy unspeakable. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Lord, how wonderful it is to know that you are seated on your throne above and that we can come as your children and involve you in everything in our lives. Every thought that we have, every want and desire, good, bad, or otherwise, Lord, you want to be a part of that. And Lord, we know that we are a, a people of unclean lips. We know that we are a, a people that wrestle with sin, but your, your grace abounds. So we're, we're thankful people today, Lord, that you continue to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and that we don't have to retreat away from you, but we can come to you. Lord, I, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters that we would intentionally seek to abide with you more and more, to grow in our deepening of this relationship that you have offered us, Lord, and perhaps we haven't taken advantage of. So change our thinking, Lord. Change our hearts. Change our lives for your glory and for our good. We thank you for all of it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.